called the New Community Network. And so far, this has kind of been this ethereal thing out there. It's like, we've got a network. What does that mean? Well, we're praying about it. We're trying to figure out what God wants to do and how we launch things, uh, you know, throughout Appalachia, throughout the state, throughout the region. And, and so for the past nine months, we've been fermenting these ideas and thinking about how we might plant these missional ministries throughout our region. And it's been really fun and it's been really hard because a lot of times we're sitting with people going, would you think about coming alongside or could we come alongside of what you're dreaming about, what you're doing? And it's just kind of this thing we're trying to work through. But, but here's the thing, that vision that I believe God said to us when we moved back here is always in my mind. Like it's constantly there. And last year, uh, our leaders started and have continued asking, what does that vision mean practically? If, if you were to hang out with my wife for very long, she would tell you, I will come home and I'll go, I've got this world-changing idea. And she's like, uh, what do we do about it? Like that's where I need help. And we landed on two things that we keep coming back to, that we keep talking about. Some big and very specific dreams, some pictures that we're painting. I, I said to you, if you were at our annual meeting this year, we said the, the, the theme for this year is going all in. We want to be all in. We want to be all about the things God wants us to be about. And so the two really practical things that we keep coming back to, the first is this. We're going to talk a lot about this thing we've called huddles right? Some of you have been through a huddle. Some of you are in a huddle right now. Some of you have heard me use the word, but you're not really sure. Here's most simply put, here's what a huddle is. A huddle is a discipleship group. It's a group of people walking together, asking two questions regularly. What is God saying to me, and what am I going to do about it, right? Because discipleship, that's the way it works. We hear what God says, but if we don't respond, then we've just heard from God and kind of ignored him. But a huddle is, it happens best, I believe, in communities, in groups of three to five, maybe a little larger at times, uh, a couple leaders and some learners, some disciples. So two falls ago, we launched our first huddle. This year, we had another one. As the school year winds down, and you'll be hearing more about this in the coming weeks, about 15 people from New Community Buchanan have been discipled through a huddle. Now, here's what I would say. They're not done, but they have a foundation because none of us are ever done in our discipleship. Amen? Like, we're just never there. So the big picture that we're painting when it comes to huddles, when we talk about this, this vision of what God wants to do through new community, our dream is that 50 to 75% of our congregation would be discipled and making more disciples in the next three to five years. That's what we're dreaming about. So right now, based on attendance that is not a time change Sunday, based on that attendance, that means we want to see about 60 to 70, listen, of you, discipling one to three other people. This is where people get scared. We want to see 60 to 70 of you saying, I will come alongside somebody and disciple them. You know what that means? You got to be discipled. That means if we, if we lived into this, now just think about this, because I'm not talking about Sunday numbers. I'm talking about people walking in discipleship. That means that over the next three to five years, the potential for about 180 to 200 people would be intentionally being discipled in relationships that are multiplying. We've got about 15 who are going to be ready to launch. I want you thinking about whether you're up for being discipled. If you are, now here, I'm going to give you permission. I don't usually do this. If you are, if you're thinking like, I know that's what I need. I need to grow in my faith. I want you to pull out your phone and I want you to email me during the message. Okay, you can catch up later. Justin at newcommunitywv.com. Just tell me. Just say, I want to be in a huddle. Don't wait on it. Just respond and obey. Some of you are like, why are we doing this today? It's not a business meeting, but you're going to understand because I want to know. I want to see us take steps. Now, here's the second picture. This is where it gets a little more fun for me. 
We, don't, we not only talk about huddles, we're talking about this thing called hubs, missional hubs. Now, this is, when we talked about this vision, we said, what's the natural overflow? If we make disciples well, what is the natural overflow of that? Do you know what it is? It's churches. Jesus didn't say, watch this, Jesus never said, go and make churches, go and plant churches. It's not in the Bible. He said, go and make what? Come on, everybody wake up. Go and make what? He said, go and make disciples, and in turn, disciples produce churches. He said, go and make disciples, and that's the overflow, is that there then begin to be communities of believers on mission, reaching every pocket, every corner of our world. Now, I want you to think about some statistics here. Listen, how many of you know the population of Buchanan? Anybody got it? Just yell it out. About 5,600 in the 2010 census, about 5,600. How about of Upshur County as a whole? Anybody got it? About 24,000. About 24,000. West Virginia. Well done. 1.8 million. Morgan must work for the state. <laughs> How about Appalachia? The whole region. 13 states. 206 counties. Only West Virginia is fully encompassed as a part of that region, by the way. About 25 million. Now, I want you to think about this. Our church right now, right now, is averaging about 120 people in attendance. Do you know what that means? We have 2% of Buchanan in worship. 2%. We have 0.005% of our entire county. There's work to be done. You don't even want to hear how minuscule it is in terms of the state and the Appalachian region. 0.005% of our county. So you go, well, well, there's so many other churches. The percentage is bigger. It's not just about us. And you're absolutely right. You want me to tell you how big it is? Because I studied it. 2010, 15% of our state attends church regularly. 270,000 out of 1.8 million. 11% of Upshur County attends church. 2,800 of the 24,000 people are in worship regularly. Now, if, 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 if you say you know Jesus, and that doesn't bother you, then we've got issues. And you got issues in your faith. So, so when we talked about this vision, we thought if huddles are the place where discipleship happens and churches are the overflow of disciples being made, then we should be planting churches. But let me tell you what happens when I share this vision with you all. Because you know what happens, but you may not want to admit it. The people in our huddles freak out when I tell them they should plant churches. They panic. I don't want to do that. Right? Because you understand church to be this thing. You understand, you, you think that church, the extent of what a church plant is, is a Sunday event, the one person up front thing. And what I've been trying to say repeatedly is this, church is not what you think it is. So if we should be planting churches, but people in huddles freak out when I say that they should be planting churches because they don't want to do this thing, then I came up with an idea. We changed the word. And we called the church plants that we want to see replicated the word. God to multiply through us, among us. We called them hubs. Isn't that creative? So we want to see 10 hubs, missional hubs, planted over the next five years. And in those hubs, the work of the church is happening. And that's why we've been talking about every single day, what does it mean to be the remarkable church? Now, you will notice I am a model today. We're getting new church shirts. There's an order form in the back. You can grab one if you want. But we've been talking about this idea of what are the essentials 
of the church. Now, I want you to read again. We've been, we've been coming back to these verses over and over and over again. Acts 2, verses 41 through 47. When the early church is described, these are the characteristics of the church. See if this sounds just like the Sunday morning thing. Here's what it says. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So people were coming to Christ on the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now, here's where we're going to land today. I'll come back to this. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every single day, they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They multiplied. So there were essential things. We've talked about these. People were coming to Christ regularly. There was devotion to discipleship. They were huddling together. They were saying, teach us, show us how to follow Jesus. There was communal life. There was generosity. There was worship and witness. Do you know what this text doesn't say? It doesn't say they only gathered once a week on Sunday mornings for 70 minutes. 75 if the pastor's long-winded. It doesn't say that teaching teaching in the church was limited to the person with the most seminary debt. doesn't say that. It doesn't say there was fancy music or holy smoke filling the room. Those weren't the essentials. So the question that I want to ask you when you look at me and say, I can't plant a church, I can't plant a hub, I can't be in a huddle, here's what I would ask you to wrestle with. What is the very minimum that has to exist for something to be called a church? Because when I read the scripture, I see church happening a lot more often around my dinner table than I do here on Sunday mornings. And that's not a criticism. That's just to say transformation happens in these hubs that gather where people share life together. So I was thinking this week. That's where I started this sermon. Let me get back to that. I was thinking this week because Jesse and I were at a church planners conference. And I was thinking about how we keep pursuing these things. I was thinking about the fact that it's been almost eight years of New Community Buchanan. And we've moved buildings seven times. And I was thinking, how do we do this? And I was, I was thinking about these essentials we're talking about. And I found myself just asking this question. What is it that's going to make this real or not? This vision, this movement. Is this just something nice to talk about so that we keep getting regular giving and people are excited about? Or is this something that God really really truly wants to do and I thought there's several things I know this is not this vision this movement is not it's not a solo movement so this vision that I think God shared with us is not going to come down to just me it's not going to come down to just the staff of the church or the the singular leader of the church I also believe this is not a fast movement This is not a program I'm trying to rush you through. So here's where I landed as I was praying about this this week. It comes down to you. It comes down to you. The vision God wants to accomplish through new community comes down to you. See, I refuse, and you know this. I say this all the time. I refuse for us to get comfortable. If it's not solo, it's us. Right? It's a we thing. If it's not fast, it's going to be slow. If it's not contingent on me, it's contingent on new community. And then I thought, this is what I wanted to preach today. Here, here's the message, and one, one, one question is what I have. It's, this is not a how-to message. I'm not going to ha- tell you how to do anything today. It's not a should message. I'm not going to should on you, okay? I'm not, that's, that's not happening. This is a question message. I have one question for you. I want to unpack it with some scripture, but I want you to answer this question. You may not be able to answer it today, and that's okay. 
Some of you may be here, you're just checking this thing out. You're just trying to figure out, do I even want to follow Jesus? People have been inviting me, they've been trying. I, I don't even know if I want to follow Jesus. And you are off the hook today. You're off the hook. But the rest of us, you got to answer this question. Do we believe in Jesus enough to change anything? Do we believe in Jesus enough to change anything in our life? Now, let's jump into this. This verse from Acts 2 that I want to center on says this, the, the next mark of this remarkable church. All the believers were together, verse 44, and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. I thought about this verse this week, and I really wanted to preach about giving. I did. I wanted to talk to you just about money. We need to talk about money. We need you to give. We need you to give regularly. We need you to automate your giving so that when you sleep in on Sunday mornings, your money doesn't. We need that to happen because we automate all the other essential things in our life. We need that to happen. And I wanted to preach that, but I felt like we needed to do more than just talk about that because we need to talk about your belief, your faith, and whether it has the power to truly change anything. Because the thing that it did for these early apostles, what changed the trajectory of the Jesus movement from a gathering of scared failures and frauds. You know these disciples failed Jesus, right? They were huddled in a room until the Holy Spirit fell on them and they said, we have to do something different. What shifted that for them? Their belief. It became strong enough to change something about the way they lived their lives. They made a shift, a change. They moved from one way of believing, just this intellectual thing, to another way of being. And those things were, were, were resolved. They collided together. Now, I want to show you a passage where I think Jesus deals with this. The first part of this passage you're going to be really familiar with. It's John 14, 6. So if you want to turn over there, you can. We'll have it on the screen as well. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and here's what he says to them. John 14, 6. I bet all of you heard this growing up if you grew up in church. Jesus answered, I am, what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. So Jesus gives this really famous statement. We quote John 14, 6 all the way. I'm the way, all the time. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I bet you've trusted this historically. Maybe you've taken this, heard this from a preacher at a revival. You're not getting to heaven unless you believe the way, the truth. He's the only way. He's the only way. He's the only way. And I bet we've even prayed this, saved, ready for what? To die. That's what that verse is centered on, right? That that's how we get to heaven. I believe that. I believe that's all absolutely true. But the rest of the story here matters. Look at Philip's response in verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. You can circle, highlight, underline enough. Because the truth, the true lie of all humanity is that nothing's ever enough for us. But Philip says it. Now, Philip doesn't get much airplay in the Gospels. We don't know much about him, but he seems to have some kind of issue here, some kind of longing, something more that he wants from Jesus. He seems to be hoping for more. Jesus, we, we've been with you. We think you're God and all, but we want to see God the Father. So just show us the Father, Jesus, and we're good to go. If you just show us the Father, we'll do, we'll do whatever you ask. We'll go all in. Maybe we've given a few bucks here and there, but you show us the Father, we'll jump to 10%. We'll, get, we'll, we'll set up online giving. We'll go there with that. We'll serve wherever you need. Maybe we've thought about joining a huddle, but Jesus, you show us the Father. We're convinced we're going in that huddle. 
We'll serve somewhere. We'll go to Ethiopia. But Jesus, just take us one more step. Show us what we've been missing, and we will do it. Now look at Jesus' response. Verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time? And then watch this. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then watch these two questions Jesus asked. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus answers Philip's questions with questions. By the way, that's discipleship. Do you ever notice how Jesus is like this Jedi question asker? He never, he's never like, oh, here's the answer. da 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 he just says, well, let me ask you a question. And it pushes them further. He says two questions. Don't you know me? And don't you believe? He says, I've already shown you the Father. You've seen the works I've done, but it's up to you now to believe. And then he goes further in this. He presses on, and he says something that turns the longing back to Philip and asks the question that I asked you. Do you believe in Jesus enough to change anything? See, we were handed, I believe culturally, we were handed John 14, 6 as the get out of hell free card. But we were not handed John 14, 7 through 14 that tells us what happens here on earth while we're waiting for heaven. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me, now underline this, will do the works I have been doing. They will do the things Jesus has been doing. And, and I love this, they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father, and I'll do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, you think I freak you out in the huddle when I say you're going to plant a church, you're going to plant a hub. What if Jesus said this to you? Jesus said, the works I've been doing, you're going to do those. Actually, you're going to do greater things than me. I want you to just frame this, and this is going to take us back to Acts. The life that Jesus lived, everything that Jesus did was centered on generosity. I don't know if you know this or not. I realize this. Philippians 2 says that Jesus came and he emptied himself. He, it, kenosis is the word. It means he, he poured himself out. Everything he had to offer as God of the universe, he took on flesh and said, now, this is for the world. I'm giving everything I have away. And so our life in Jesus, our life is rooted and built, and when our belief actually starts to change something, it becomes what I would call courageous and radical generosity. Now, don't even get sucked into thinking that's just about money, because we're going to talk about all those things. But this idea of generosity, of pouring ourselves out, this is why in Acts 2 verse 44, it tells us all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They took on the spirit of Jesus by becoming generous themselves. The early church was defined. You can read the Roman texts outside of Scripture. They're not biased. They're actually really critical. The Roman texts outside of Scripture actually call out and say, we can't figure out these little Christs. That's what Christian means, by the way. They were insulting. We can't figure out these little Jesus people because all they do is gather around tables together and share food, and they, all, they shouldn't get along. They're from different racial uh, identities. They're from different socioeconomic identities, but they share food, and they seem to love each other like for real. 
They're not just being nice. And then when they get together, the ones who have enough will give some of their enough away to help the ones who have nothing. And then the ones who have nothing will give some of their nothing away to help the people around them. It was radical and courageous generosity, and it cost them something. And I want to ask you this question today. Again, do you believe in Jesus enough to change anything? Let me give you a couple principles of this. Here's the first thing. Obedient action is the proof of our belief. See, your belief is not limited to just what you intellectually think. It's not just the realm of the mind that reflects our belief. It's actually obedient action. So, so if, I, if I said to you, this pew will hold me, I can sit on this pew and will hold me, and you say, cool, that's, prove it. Well, I just proved it. I just told you it will hold me. That's where I limit to this intellectual thing. If I am truly believing this, I sit down in it. It would have been awful if that would have fallen right there, right? But I believe something when I live into it, when I take action that, that, that pulls me towards it. See, I think some of us are held up by the moral lines when you need to be set free toward the battle lines. Some of us approach our Christianity, our faith, our reasoning, thinking, well, I just want to be out of hell. I want to make sure I get to heaven. And then I want to try to be a morally good person. You know what they call that today? It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is the religion of the day, most of what we believe. Moralistic in the sense we're trying to be good people. Therapeutic in the sense that we're trying to be comfortable people. And deism, meaning we believe there's a God, but he probably doesn't do much with us right now. See, when we live into this place of faith and become the church we're called to be, then obedient action follows, and we are called out into the places where God wants to work his mission and transform the world. So suddenly we go, 0.005% of our county is understanding Jesus in worship. That's unacceptable. We are called to those places. Many of us in our faith are saying, how close can I get to sin without sinning, versus Jesus saying, no, I want you to go into hell and rescue people from it. And that's the shift that has to take place. Here's the second principle. The church is called to a common life. You can't be the church without living into community. West Virginians, hear me. You know our history, right? Scots Irish, going to the mountains, leave us alone. Everybody with me? America, stay out of my business. Right? My family, that's all I need. Leave us alone. Just, just let me do my thing. That is anti-Christian. The church is called to a common life. We are called to share with, to open up our homes, to open up our tables. This church was together, and they had everything in common. I know you think Bernie's a socialist, but this sounds a lot like Jesus was promoting the same things. Got real uncomfortable real quick, didn't it? That's okay. Conservatives, you can go back other places and argue the other side as well, because I'm a political atheist. There's no savior in politics. The church had a common life. I'm not telling you our government should do that, but I'm saying if the church is actually banded together and did what the church is called to do, there would be no poverty in the world. There would be no hunger in the world. Why are we expecting the politicians of the day to do the mission the church is called to? Do we believe enough to change anything in our life? Here's the third thing. Courageous and radical generosity is the overflow of our experience with grace. 
See, when we truly encounter the grace of Jesus, we can't help but begin to pour ourselves out in radical generosity because we cannot believe that a Savior would pour himself out for us. The problem with moralism is that many of us think that that we're not bad. We're not all that bad. So Jesus rescued us to get us to heaven. That's great. But we can kind of continue on in the path we're going. Until you realize you are a sinner wrecked by hell in desperate need of a Savior to which you have no hope outside of him, you will never understand the correct courageous and radical generosity that grace demands, requires, and pours into us. And let me tell you what generosity comes down to. It's different areas. Yes, it's finances. Let's talk about that for two minutes. Luke, 4, or Luke 11, verse 42, Jesus is, is woeing the Pharisees. I love this, this chapter, by the way. You should read the whole thing. He says, woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. He says, you tithe, you give your 10%. But then he says, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. I hear preachers all the time who are talking about, oh, we need to tithe. We need to get to our 10%. We need to get to our 10%. I actually think that's wrong. I actually think that's where the Old Testament started. I actually think the prayer and the life we live into should be, how can I give as much away as possible? And you know what? That requires our finances. Some of you, and don't and again, no guilt today, but you need to understand, if Jesus is speaking to you about this, your giving may not, you may be in a position of so much debt that you can't give to the church, but you may need to start tithing to get out of debt. Start with your credit cards. Just give 10% to that every month. Stop buying crap you don't need. There's a biblical principle for you, okay? That's, that's a theologically true statement. I'll give you the Greek someday, but that's, that's the English. Say no. Live into the, but Jesus says the tithe, yeah, 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 but you got to go farther than that. You should do the tithe, but you should also care about generosity and justice and not get caught in this legalism. Paul spells this out in 2 Corinthians 8. He's talking about the church. He says, uh, verse 1, let me, let me just hit this really quick. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God's given the Macedonian churches. So I want to tell you about the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He says, this church was in the middle of a trial. Can I just say something to you? I love you all. But if you wait till you have enough to start giving, it's never going to happen. You give in the middle of trials. You give in the middle of pressure, in the middle of suffering, because that's where generosity comes from. Jesus didn't die on the cross going, I wish this was a more convenient time for me. He gave in the midst of his trials. And then Paul says in verse 3, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. That doesn't sound like a tithe. They gave beyond what they could because they were required to believe that God would meet them, that he would provide. Do we believe enough to change anything? But it's not just generosity with finances. It's also generosity with our time. Where does this hit you? Is your time your own or is your time devoted to Jesus? Is generosity with our power? Where do you have authority, standing, privilege, power that you could actually begin to empty yourself into someone else? I, I, I work a lot. I don't, I don't really work in an office. I work in multiple places. So I'll go, one day I'll go to Stone Tower. Then I'll go to McDonald's. And I'll sit wherever there's Wi-Fi and a refillable drink, I'm good to go. Like that's, that's kind of the way my office hours go. And one of the things that drives me crazy, and, and I just, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm probably going to offend some people, but oh well. As if I haven't already today. When I'm at McDonald's or Hardee's, you know that population of men. Are you with me? The retired community? You with me? I know, I know. So I'm 
this side, right? And some days I put my noise-canceling headphones on and I turn off the noise-canceling and I don't listen to music. I listen to them. And what I hear is nothing but a scarcity mentality. This generation doesn't get it. And you know what's fascinating to me is then I'll hang out with a younger population. I'm going to equal opportunity to offend everybody today. A younger population, millennials, Gen Y, whoever's in the room that needs to hear this. And I'll hear the same thing. Why don't my parents get this? And see, we're not generous when we start thinking that we're the only one who gets it. We're missing something. I want to take those men at Hardee's and I want to say, can I, can I just ask you to stop buying a biscuit for yourself every day and start taking a kid from the high school to lunch every week and pouring into them? Can you become generous? They don't get it. You're absolutely right. And students, your parents don't get it. You're absolutely right. But until we pour out our power, our privilege, our status, and we become generous with the relationships around us, it's never going to change. And the church has to lead the way in this. Here's the last principle. Hopefully this won't tick anybody else off. Greater things, greater things lie on the other side of our courageous and radical generosity. Jesus says that. He says, Philip, if you believe in me, you'll do greater things than I've done. That, that verse blows my mind, right? And, and I, w- I want you to recognize what this, what this says, what Jesus really says here. This is Jesus who died on a cross and then came back to life. And he says, if you believe in me, you're going to do greater things than I've done. This is Jesus who looked at the lepers of his day who were outcasts and said, no, I will stoop down, I will touch you, and you will be made clean. He says, you're going to do greater things than that. This is Jesus who found the woman caught in adultery who should have been stoned to death, the people that had been cast aside from every dinner table in the world. And he says, no, you belong with me. And he looks at his followers and he says, you're going to do greater things than that. And so when I look at our churches today and I say there's 2% of our city's population in worship, there's 0.005% of our county's population in worship, then I have to think that maybe we're missing something, maybe we're doing some things wrong, or maybe we just don't believe enough and it hasn't changed us. Friends, I love you and I'm glad that you are going to go to heaven and I hope that you believe that. And if you don't, we should talk. I would love to sit down and explore that with you. But I also believe that we are called to something greater and to be the church that we're called to be. I refuse to slow down on saying to you, we are called to multiply disciples. And if it doesn't fit your schedule, then you need to become more generous with your schedule. We are called to do the work of planting And if it doesn't fit what you're comfortable with, then we need to be more generous with your comfort because it's who Jesus called us to be. And the thing that stands in the way, and this is where I'll close, the band can go ahead and come. The thing that stands in the way more often than anything is our fear, right? We talked about this last week, or two, yeah, last week. It's our fear. Our fear stands in the way. I I told you our fear dictates our imagination. What we fear the most creates the, the imagination that we have. And when we place our fear in God and we lay it at his feet saying, Jesus, you, I believe in you. And I believe when I see Jesus, I see the Father, then I'm going to surrender all this to you. And so my fear, when it comes to my generosity of finances, Jesus, you can have that. And I will trust that somehow you're going to do more with me having less of my money than you're going to do with me having all of my money. 
And when it comes to my time, Jesus, I'm actually going to trust you that, that you're going to supply what I need. And actually, there might be some things that I need to say no to. And yeah, I'm afraid that I may miss out on some stuff, but maybe you've got better stuff for me. You've got greater things. Maybe our phrase should become greater things. Maybe that should be our prayer. Jesus, lead us to the greater things. That maybe in our power, in our relationships, in our time, in our privilege, in our grace, we could just become generous. And the generosity will happen when we say, Jesus, I'm not going to let me be afraid anymore because I fear you enough to believe you can conquer it all. And so as we pray today, I'm inviting you to just answer that question for yourself. Again, this isn't a how-to. It's not a should. It's just a question. Do you believe enough in Jesus to change anything? And I just want to throw that out and pray it over you and say, Jesus, would you speak to this congregation? So let's pray together. Jesus, I just feel like there are some here who maybe need an opportunity to say yes to you for the first time. I don't want to blow past. I don't want to take away from the fact that you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, and no one, no one, God, is going to get to you but coming through Jesus. And so if you're here and you're saying, I haven't been a Jesus follower, and today is the moment, today is the time and the place that I need to say yes to Jesus, then I'd love to pray for you. And all you got to do is make eye contact. Nothing magical. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just would love to help you say yes to Jesus, that somebody else in the room sees you and sees your heart. And if that's you, just look at me, and I, I just, I'll just pray for you. God, maybe there's those of us who need called to this radical, this courageous generosity. I don't know what the steps are, but I know it's what we're called to. Do we believe in you enough to change anything? Help us answer that question. God, as we sing this song about the removal of fear, that when we're loved, there's no fear. God, would you speak in whatever way you want to speak? do your work in this place. It's in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. I'd invite you to sing, but I'd also invite you to spend some time with Jesus. If you need to kneel at the altar and pray, if you need to sit and pray, if you want to pray with me, I'll be up front. Whatever it is, live into this moment with the courage and the radical generosity God's called us to.